Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jason Knight, and on each episode of this podcast, I'll be having inspiring conversations with passionate product people. If you feel like joining in the fun, why don't you share this episode with at least one of your other passionate product friends and we'll see if we can inspire a few people together. On tonight's episode, we'll be talking about practical product management, how a desire to get out of the system led my guest into the rarefied heights of product consultancy, the importance of demonstrating product thinking and not just talking about it, and some of the challenges of being a woman in tech, some of the trepidation around being an upcoming parent in tech, and of course that still massively over-indexes on the mother in the equation. We'll also talk about the importance of no code for the product community, what you can and can't do with it, and get a shocking answer to the question about whether we need engineers anymore. For all this and much more, please join us on One Night in Product. So, my guest tonight is Bushra Joshkina, self-described product woman with glitter and music in her mind. Bushra is a product consultant, coach and trainer, advocate for and builder of no-code solutions. Bushra says she's the queen of breaking things and in that vein is helping break glass ceilings as a top 50 Women in Product Europe winner. Bushra is helping companies build their product management muscles, which she's doing with her own consultancy, all over Clubhouse and paying it forward as the co-organizer of Startup Weekend in Zurich. Hi Bushra, how are you doing tonight? Hi, Jason. I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. So first things first, you have your own product consultancy. So what problem does that consultancy solve and who do you solve it for? So who is basically anyone who needs support in product management and practical product management, especially. There are lots of theories out there, frameworks, methods, and so on and so forth. And we all know that we cannot learn them all and not in a lifetime. (laughs) And even if we do learn them, we cannot master them all. And especially thinking about theory versus practice. I mean, theory is nice, but in practice, we face so many different situations that we cannot stick to the theory. So I stand for practical product management and product thinking customer and user centricity. And this is what I'm trying to bring through when I work with my clients. And is that working with a lot of big companies or is it small companies, startups? Do you get involved in sort of digital transformation? How's the, or what's the profile of your, of your clients? I don't work in digital transformation. I rather work with either individuals that I coach, like head of products, for example, or with companies like startups, for example, with founders who need a better sense for building products and not just something because they can build it, but to make sure they build something because it makes sense, right? And I have also been involved in a startup and then an interim's position as a, as a head of product. So that's basically all the things that I'm doing. Right now, I'm preparing a uh, training for a certified Scrum product owner class. So there's a variety of things that, that I'm actually doing. Oh, so a big mixture. But are you doing that mainly with uh, Swiss-based companies or are you doing it remote with companies all around the world? I'm focusing mainly on Switzerland because I believe that we need more product muscle here in Switzerland. We're doing great. We have, a, uh, we have started very well here and I think uh, we can just improve, you know, continuous learning, right? 
but I've also worked with um, companies from outside of Switzerland, definitely, especially Germany. Um, I come from Germany originally. I come from Berlin. So yeah, I have worked with some clients over there as well. So Berlin is, is very traditionally a tech hub and where a lot of startups, certainly in Europe, all, all gravitate towards. Did you find that growing up in and presumably working on the scene in Berlin was really helpful then to, to build that initial expertise that you could then take out of the country and, and help to bed that in elsewhere? Definitely. I mean, um, so <laughs> funny enough, today I had a session on Clubhouse um, to talk about product management in Switzerland. <laughs> and the idea for this uh, for this very specific room to focus on product management in Switzerland came actually from my story that I moved from the Tech Hub Berlin to Switzerland and I was the arrogant German <laughs> <laughs> who thought I figured it all out <laughs> because I worked in this Tech Hub in Berlin and we did a lot of things. We had such a speed over there and we, we, we did it the Berlin way. And of course, that helps you to learn a lot. Like you have to, you have to work, right? Like in, in, in Berlin, it's the speed is so high. You, you have to just function. You, you are like a robot at, at, at one point. You know, you're, you're like a machine. You don't have emotions. You just, you just work <laughs> kind of. And then coming here thinking like, Oh, I figured it all out, which of course uh, led to a big fail. And I had to learn. Yeah, maybe I know a lot of techniques. Maybe I I have a lot of experience. I know a lot of stuff, but the way how you work here is different. So I had to adapt to that. Yeah, that's really interesting because I was speaking to a, to another person recently that's I think they worked in Silicon Valley for a while and then went back to Canada and they've worked with people around the globe. And there's this feeling that outside of these tech hubs that that maybe it's not quite as straightforward or easy to actually get some of these, you know, things that we would call fundamentals or product truths or product thinking that, that we all take for granted. But that actually, it can be quite difficult when you go to maybe a place that's a lot more service oriented or you know, service background. Yeah. Do you think that's the case in Switzerland? Uh, I know you say that it's it's moving, but do you feel that there's that gravity still kind of weighing you down a little bit there? Yeah, I mean, yes. In, in, in the end, yes. Um, it's a more service-oriented country, but it's also a naturally slower country. Maybe that's that's the bigger piece of, of, or maybe the bigger difference between between Berlin and Switzerland, because slow doesn't mean doesn't mean bad. And this is something that I had to learn as well, right? So yeah. in Berlin, everything is just happens so fast, and product thinking is is just normal. But then you come here and yes, you have service thinking. That's one thing. The other thing is people take their time to make decisions. I had to learn that this is a good thing. People take their time to discuss things. I have to say this is something <laughs> um, where you need balance, right? You, you, you shouldn't spend too much time on discussing. You should spend more time on doing things. But it's it's good to take the time to discuss the most important things and to make sure that that people are aligned right so these kind of things are good things yeah so it's more the pace i would say but you've been in product management for something like 10 years 10 or so years you uh, started out in deutsche telecom went through a bunch of different companies uh, including home 24 and doodle yeah 
What made you decide to go from that to starting up on your own with your own consultancy? Actually, <laughs> it's a funny story. I was actually chasing a startup idea and decided to quit my job because of that. But looking back, I think that was just the final piece that finally made me make this move because that's something that I've always had as a dream to have my own business, you know, um, and to to just work for myself. But so during my studies, I actually had a couple of attempts to search something, but I've always stopped there because so I am raised in a family, you know, one of the biggest goals of our family was have a job and a stable income. <laughs> if you have that, everything's fine. But <laughs> I didn't like that. <laughs> so once I finished my studies and started working, I was like, this is it. <laughs> <laughs> and I tried to stick to that for 10 years. And yeah, my my family was always like, yeah, it's good. It's good. You know, you have a stable job. And no, uh, for me, it wasn't good. But I tried to live in the system. And actually, I was, so my last employer was Doodle, and I was actually pretty happy there. But it was this thing, there was this traction around my, my, my startup idea. And I had to, I had to try it out. What happened then is, so I, I thought I would regret it. If I, if I again make the same decision as always not to try it out, then I will regret it. So therefore, I quit my job. And I actually stopped on the validation step. I validated there is a problem. Yes, I validated a solution that I had in mind might be even the right solution, but I couldn't build it. And I didn't want to go the VC road. So I just stopped and um, yeah, started consulting, started coaching and training. At the same time, I started to learn no-code tools to be able to actually build some pieces, at least, of the idea. Yeah, that's the story. Yeah, I did notice that you put some some stuff about no-code in your profile, which we'll come back to in a minute. But before that, what or how did you get into product management in the first place? I mean, I know you did a, an MBA, I think, in Turkey, whether that was in Turkey or remote at Bill Kent University. Is that where you started getting interested in in product management and potentially building startups and, and building products and taking them to market and doing all that cool stuff? Or, or was that something that you picked up after that and after you started in your career? Actually, the MBA was just like a one semester as an exchange student. Aha. Uh -huh. Yeah, that, I, I took some classes, some MBA classes over there, but that was just for a month. Uh, sorry, for a, for a semester. I actually studied in, in, in Berlin at the Technical University. So basically, again, looking back, I studied the perfect... Um, <laughs> Uh, or I took the perfect classes actually to become a product manager. I wouldn't say there was this discussion, should you have studied or not to become a product manager? So I'm not going to go into that piece. <laughs> maybe yes, maybe no. I don't know the answer. But in the end, I did study and I studied industrial engineering and management. And actually, the interest in product management, I've always worked in product management. I never did something else. That's the that's weird part because many people find their way somehow into product management. For me, it happened naturally because I looked for what I wanted to do 
no matter what the what the job description is. And then I ended up doing those things and partly even started with the right title, which was just by chance because because 10 years ago, I mean, there were not so many product management positions in, in Germany, right? You basically picked a job that happened to be product management, but it wasn't really that, that was what you were going for. You, you, wanted, you wanted the thing that that meant, and that just happened to be product management. Exactly. You didn't, like, you didn't start out going, when I grow up, I want to be a product manager or anything like that. Exactly, exactly. And it actually even started during my studies. Um, so I had a um, student job at the university. After I, I wrote my diploma, I actually had s- still a couple of semesters left. And then I, I worked there and actually I, I, I was, so after I wrote my diploma, I worked as a working student in the university and I did research and discovery stuff and happens to be part of product management, right? <laughs> and then actually I made an internship as well at, at Deutsche Telekom. And after that, actually, I started at Deutsche Telekom and it, with, a, with a limited project. And those ones happened to be, like both of them also happened to be in product management. And the second one even had the title of product management. I wasn't a product manager, but <laughs> that, was, that was basically the team that I worked with. It was the product management team. But nowadays, as we've touched on, obviously you're working with a bunch of different companies trying to help them sort out their, their product practice or bring in product thinking. We were talking before about how you, you tend to get involved pretty early on and helping, you know, with, as you say, discovery, helping fleshing out MVPs, helping with their early product thinking. But, but before any of that, obviously MVP, the, the acronym, has started to seem to become a bit controversial these days because you know, you ask a bunch of people what an MVP is, they all give you a different answer. No one's really got the same expectation of, of what that is. Do, do you find that when you're working with companies that, that that's a challenge and that, that you have to really help frame that or does everyone just get it? It is a challenge and it continues to be a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, I so I believe the name or the acronym MVP started as something that was a good thing but now it became a frankenstein's monster and everybody has a different piece or, or uses a p- different piece of it so it becomes a challenge in that way that many people think and when i say people it's it's especially um the leaders in the company the managers right they think an mvp just means yeah put something out there it doesn't have to work well. It doesn't have to be pretty. It's okay with pretty. With pretty, I I might be like, yeah, maybe. <laughs> but <laughs> um, th- this answer maybe is actually the right answer because the MVP always depends on what your customer needs, right? So if and what's this what what the smallest value is that you can deliver to the customer, and if usability, the user experience, and talking about prettiness, the UI, if all of this is part of what your customer expects, then yes, it's part of your MVP. If your customer expects, however, a very specific functionality that solves a very specific problem for them, and they don't care about about the prettiness of it, then it's not part of your MVP. So I think the whole discussion about MVP 
turned into something too specific. And we have we have started to forget that it's still about the customer and it's still about what the customer needs. Yeah, I think the concept is obviously one that has a lot of power and, and, and I definitely think that the idea is good, but I just think that the just the, the, the differences in opinion just mean that every single company that you work for gives you gives you something completely different level of quality. And yeah. you know, I've had various different people sitting there saying that the term should basically be retired and replaced with something else, which is, you know, so I guess a pie in the face for, for Eric Reese, but but as long as the results, you know, or as long as the process remains the same and we can all kind of coordinate around something, I guess that his his principles will live on. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> but we also discussed how you, you get involved in, in the discovery as we were just talking about as well. And obviously that supposes working with teams to build out hypotheses and then testing the hypotheses. But that does suggest a level of product thinking that, that not all companies have. So do you find that it normally works like that with the companies that, that are bringing you on? Do you find that they accept that as a working process or do you have to deal with quite a few CEOs or, or business leaders just kind of getting you in and, and telling you what they want? So as I mentioned, I'm I'm rather working with the individuals so that they get better at what they're doing. It's less so that, that I get in and facilitate activities like setting up hypotheses or, or something like that. What I hear from from the individuals that I'm coaching is that they struggle to get their managers understand why it's so important that they go this way. That's something that I hear quite often. What else? Yeah. So another thing that I hear quite often is that their managers actually think that they have product thinking and they think that they are customer oriented. <laughs> and this seems to make their lives, um, like my coaches' uh, lives, a bit difficult because um, they cannot prove or show them that it's nice what they're thinking, but it's not what they think that they're thinking. <laughs> so, yeah, it's it's rather these two problems. But how do you get your coaches to push against that? I mean, is that something that you would then go in and kind of have a sit down with the CEO or whatever and, and try and persuade them yourselves? Or are you more about persuading the persuaders to go and do that? I'm persuading the persuaders to go and do that. <laughs> and, and what's your advice for them then? Like, what are some approaches that you that you can take with people that are struggling with that to to actually be able to go in and say to their boss or their boss's boss, "Hey, boss or boss's boss, this isn't <laughs> this isn't right." Like, like, what can you actually advise them to do? I would highly advise not to go to the boss's boss. <laughs> 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 so to start from there. So in the end. It's a matter of deciding whether it's the place you want to work. That's one thing. Um, you, so I, I'm always saying, it's not the first thing that I'm saying, but at one point, if it still doesn't change and they're still frustrated, at one point I start saying, look, if this is not what makes you happy, think about if it's worth staying there. That's, that's one thing. And that's the easy part. That's why I'm saying it at, as the first point. <laughs> and now to the <laughs> difficult part. So. One thing that has worked quite well and what I'm also ad advising is to actually show 
the difference instead of tell the difference. So you might try to convince your boss like on a theoretical level, and then you have those discussions about what product thinking really means. That That's not going to get you anywhere. As soon as you start implementing those things, like setting up hypotheses, like doing small tests, things that are not so risky, things that are not too expensive, like things that um, you won't get in trouble when you do it without anyone signing it off, you know, start with those things and then talk about what happened. And don't be like, hey, look at this. I did that. So now I proved you wrong, right? So this is wrong. (laughs) Don't do that. Just do it and talk about what you did, how you did it, what's the results, and what you and your team and your product, et cetera, can learn from or take away from those results and what you need to do now as the next steps. And then doing this will actually be more valuable and will actually teach them indirectly how to work better than than trying to just discuss, right? Discussions don't get you anywhere. <laughs> yeah, I think that one thing that can come up in those situations is people just assume you're being idealistic and not really being a realistic business person. So I think that I agree with the whole concept of doing small things and trying to iterate your way to proving it. I guess the difficulty is when you have, as you've obviously seen yourself and, and everyone's talking about the the kind of product managers that are really project managers because they're being slammed to the wall, you know, being just given way too many tasks and just being told to get them done, that actually then being able to carve out the time to do that, I guess, could be considered a challenge. But I guess to your first point, you'd probably just advise that they walk out at that point. Exactly. I'm heavily nodding. Nobody's seeing it. I know that, but I'm heavily <laughs> nodding. <laughs> no, I, I, I couldn't see you through my microphone either, so um, I, I probably need to get a better setup. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, heavily nodding. So project managers, if you end up as a project manager and this is not what you want, then it's, of course, um, I think, I personally think you should think about whether you want to stay or not. You mentioned it already, and we talked about it before this call as well, that you're interested in no code. And, and I know that you yourself built something yourself recently via some no code platform to help promote the achievements of women, yeah. which we'll come back to in a sec. But in general, how do you feel about no code? You've obviously, you've seen that help accelerate what you want to do and mean that you can do things without having to worry about learning to actually you know, learn React or whatever. But do you think that this as a concept is something that can transform product management? Maybe we don't even need engineers anymore. What, what, do, you, what do you think? I think we will always need engineers. I think, <laughs> <laughs> I think that's something that I'm, that I'm seeing in the no-code community discussions popping up everywhere. Engineers being like, oh, no, no-code tools are, I don't know, they are not stable. They are not secure. They are not, I don't know, you can't scale them and, and so on and so forth. And there's one extreme of no-code people who say, yeah, we will never need engineers again. And there is the other extreme of engineers and coders who are like, no, of course you, you, you're you going to need us. I believe we will always need engineers. I mean, they built, they, they are the ones who built the no-code tools, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, just kidding here. 
I believe no-code no tools do have their limits. And there are a lot of things that can be done with code better than with no-code. So it's never going to be, uh, replace code. I personally even think that when, when coders embrace no-code tools, it's going to make their lives easier. I mean, imagine as a engineer, Sometimes you get so stupid requests, you know, and you sit there and like, oh, do, do I really have to do that? And if there is an easy way to do it um, without code, just with, you know, clicking here, clicking there, maybe those people who ask you for these stupid things can do it themselves, <laughs> you know, or even you could do it for them and have saved a ton of time, you know. So therefore, I think no code tools can help everybody. and. I believe, especially in product management, no-code tools are a game changer. I mean, I'm thinking back of the... the pro So at Doodle, I was building new products and I'm thinking back of the prototypes that we did. I'm thinking back of the landing pages that we built just to, to test some, some hypotheses, right? And those were coded. Now, why are we doing this, right? So why are we occupying valuable engineering time with things that we can do ourselves? Plus, I mean, there is still this discussion about, do we really need discovery and research? Yes, we still need discovery and research. We need it a lot. We need a lot of testing. We need a lot of small things that we can put out. I don't want to call them MVP here. <laughs> <laughs> But we, we do need to build some experiments and just test a couple of things before we code. And there are so many managers and line managers and organizations who are like, no, we cannot spend time on experimenting, right? No code tools. With no code tools, you don't spend any time anymore on testing things, right? So there is nothing, there's no valid argument anymore to say it's just going to cost us engineering time that we could also spend or use for, for building the thing. No, it's not going to cost you any engineering time and it's going to be very cheap for you. So, so you don't need any engineers to run your first tests. You don't even have to allocate any resources. Okay, my engineers will be bad with me that I said resources now. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. You're just moving people around like chess pieces. I understand. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, so you're not going to allocate anything, right? No budget, nothing, no time, and no code uh, tools are game changer. Plus, I mean, product managers are busy as hell. How many meetings do you have in your calendar, right? So use no code tools to just automate things. Just automate your tasks, like the ones that, that happen um, again and again use those automation tools and just automate your tasks. Save time. That's amazing. So you see how passionate I am about. I'm going to say, where do, where do I sign? <laughs> <laughs> and back to your personal project, female leaders. And this is something that I've spoken about with a few people now, the, the importance of amplifying the voices of, of leading women and, and, of course, leading on then to women in the workplace, women in tech, women in product. And obviously, you yourself are a woman, uh, expectant mother. So looking forward to uh, to hearing the good news on that in a couple of months. But you yourself work for a lot of companies and you have worked for a lot of companies. How do you see the 
professional landscape for women out there and indeed for working mums, which obviously you'll become soon? Oh, that's a tough question. <laughs> tough because that's a um, minefield, right? Yep. <laughs> so to be very honest, I personally have just recently noticed that many things that happened in my career were because I'm a woman. Now people will be like, no, you can't know that. I didn't know that. <laughs> and and I, I mean it, I really didn't know. But what I did know was that things happened and I couldn't explain it. And I, I always felt like, is it me? Am I wrong? Am I doing something wrong? What's happening? And a coach actually opened my eyes and were like, no, you're not alone with those stories. So that's what's happening to many, many women in business. And that's how I actually understand that many things that are happening are because I'm a woman. And it's not because I'm a woman by gender and people see I have long hair and whatever. <laughs> it's more because the way how women think, how women decide, how women react, how women act, how their voices change, how their mimics change, and their principles and values are completely different to a man's values, voices, and so on, whatever. And I have learned really just recently how difficult it actually is in business to make sure that a man and a woman speak the same language. It's the same like at home. <laughs> <laughs> it's really the same. So we might think we have expressed ourselves in the best way and the man might still not understand it. And vice versa, right? So the man might be like, oh, I made it very clear. And the woman understood something completely different and thought understood him very well, but actually didn't. And this happens. And, and this, is, this is sad. Or, no, wait, that's wrong. This is normal. What is sad is that people still don't see a problem here. What is sad is that there are still companies who start with a diversity and inclusion program pick a woman to make that to make her a head of diversity and inclusion and think they have fixed the problem been there seen that <laughs> and um, the problem is however uh, that they don't do any steps to actually change or to fix the problem right change the situation and to give more women chances in their careers. I have seen lots of companies. I mean, seen means also heard of, right? So, I mean, I, I, have a, I have a good network and I'm exchanging a lot with people. And what I hear is when I say I see, then I also mean the ones where I wasn't involved. There are so many companies um, who kind of are doing quite good in, in terms of hiring more women in in like yeah how do you say that in normal positions let's say <laughs> but as soon as you get up the hierarchy it ends there 
right? So they don't do anything to support their women to grow, to get promoted, to become line managers, to become group managers, or to even get up to management level, right? They don't do enough to support them. That's a big generalization. Of course, there are a couple of companies, and I have a couple of them in mind who are doing great in that. But the majority of the companies, at least in Switzerland, what I see, and in Germany, what I, what I see as well, are not doing great on that. But do you think it's getting better? Or do you think that it's basically staying kind of the same? It's staying kind of the same. What's getting better is that we're talking about it. Yeah. That we're discussing it and that even if it's even if it's sometimes harsh discussions, that's fine. But we are discussing it. We're talking about it. And that's the first step, right? No, absolutely. I've got to keep people aware and hopefully step by step. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll change something. Yeah, I hope so. And especially look, looking at moms. I mean, I have never thought about working moms, right? I, I was never in this situation. Now I'm pregnant and I'm like, okay, <laughs> what am I going to do now? Yeah, I have to admit, I'm thinking if it's a good thing or not to have a stable income now that I have, now that, that I'm going to have a, have a baby, right? And as a mother, the first thing that you think about already is your baby and your, your, your baby's future. And I'm, and I'm thinking, okay, maybe a stable income would be good. But when I get employed, I will get into the same trouble again, right? Yeah, exactly. Even worse, now I'm gonna have a I'm gonna have a child, and as a, as a product leader, <laughs> good luck finding a, a part time leadership position, right? No. <laughs> so yeah, I don't have an answer for what to do as a mother. I don't know. I'm just sending all of the working moms out there my love and my positive energy. And yeah, I, I hug them, all of them out there. <laughs> yeah, again, it just feels like one of those things that, that needs to be sorted out. And obviously part of that could be, of course, sharing the childcare responsibilities between the parents. That's obviously one thing that could work with that. And the kind of joint parental leave that a lot of countries are doing now. But yeah, there's clearly quite a long way to go and of course it is disproportionately the women that, that shoulder this which is why they're affected most but what's going to happen is if that does get spread more even is everyone's just going to be in a bad situation it's like the, the situation is bad because of the inherent inability of companies to deal with it and that has the side effect of, of smashing women at the moment but it feels like that that as a you know, that whole concept just needs to be somehow reimagined so that people can actually be more flexible and and like you say have part-time roles and do all of the things that they need to do plus also caring after the children that they've, that they've had so again a lot of work to do yeah yeah i mean that's a topic with with my boyfriend as well i mean he would be open for taking care of the baby too but still like i would still need a position that's not fully full-time right so exactly so you're in the same situation exactly. just with less money less money for him as well so exactly it's uh yeah definitely definitely try, hoping that companies can come up with some form of imagination about that yeah you described yourself before this call as the queen of breaking things i don't want to go into too much detail on that one but in product terms what's the biggest thing you've broken in your career and how did you fix it <laughs> 
Oh, that's a difficult one because I was constantly breaking something. <laughs> <laughs> well, I expect the queen of breaking things will be breaking things relatively often. I just wonder if there are any that stuck out. Well, one experience that was really funny, I don't really remember what exactly it was that I broke. Because again, I'm constantly breaking things. Therefore, <laughs> I just don't, you know, try to keep that, keep that in mind. But <laughs> what happened was, so a colleague of mine, actually, actually, he gave me this nickname. Funny, yeah, it was him. So a colleague of mine <laughs> was working on something unrelated with me. We were actually working on the, on, on the same uh, projects again and again, but that was something that he was working on with, with a different product manager. So he, he's an engineer and he was like, hey, Bushra, um, I've done something. Could you try to break this, please? And I want to make sure that it's stable because I show it to the other colleague. I was like, yeah, sure, I can, I can have a look. And he was like, I think it's pretty stable, but you know, just give it a try. I was like, okay, tick, 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 tick. ten seconds later, I broke it. <laughs> <laughs> and then I gave it back to him, and he was like, how did you do that? Okay, I explain it, and then he was like, okay, I'll fix it. He went back to the to to his desk, maybe an hour later or something. He came back and was like, okay, I fixed this one, and I also found a couple of other things that I fixed. Could you test it again? Okay, no problem. I took it. A couple of seconds later, I broke it. <laughs> and I was like, I was so sure it's working now. Okay, how did you do that? I described them how I did that. Then he went back to his desk two hours later or something like that. So this time it took longer than the first time. He was like, okay, I'm super sure you cannot break it. I have fixed so many things now. Just try breaking it. You, you're not going to be able to do that. And it took me longer. Yes, that's true. But I broke it. <laughs> and it was like, okay, I give up. I will just show it to that colleague. Probably he won't break it. So that's fine. <laughs> it sounds like you've got a uh, budding career in QA if you, if you want it. Because uh, you seem to be able to get straight to the root of the problems every single time. Bear that in mind. Yep. That could be an alternative career path. <laughs> there you go. And uh, where can people find you if they want to catch up and speak about product or, or any of the things we've discussed here, aside from Clubhouse, if they've got an iPhone? <laughs> so uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, I mean, just copy my name then from <laughs> <laughs> from your, your website and then paste it into the search. That's where I'm most active, especially around product management uh, things. I'm on Twitter, underscore... BC, be like, you know, and the animal, the flying animal that makes honey. And the, I, I've heard of those, yeah. Great. I've seen some. <laughs> <laughs> and then see like not the ocean, but the sea and then underscore again. I'll, I'll, I'll put it in the, in the show notes. Yeah, I think that's easier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And um, that's actually the main social media sites where you can find me. On Twitter, I'm more about no code. On LinkedIn, I'm more about product management. I have a Medium page. I have a blog as well. So you can also find me there. Yeah. Excellent. Well, that's been a really interesting chat and run through some of the things that make you tick. So uh, definitely appreciate you taking the time. Obviously, wish you all the best for the uh, the upcoming life change that you've that you've got in a couple of months. But I'm sure we'll keep in touch between now and then and, and after. But, but for now, thanks very much for taking the time. Thanks a lot for having me, Jason. 
As ever, thanks for listening. I hope you found the episode insightful and useful. If you did, I'd love it if you could hop over to onenightinproduct.com, that's night with a K, or to your podcast app of choice, and check out some of the other inspiring conversations with some of my other excellent guests. If you could find it within yourself to subscribe, review, rate, or share this podcast, that will also be much, much appreciated.